Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. But in the end, it's only a passing thing. The shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Oh, thank you for joining us, listeners. And one day there'll be a tale of two men doing a podcast, and they talked about movies, well, they were supposed to, but most of the time they didn't. Do, but they were known think, as the real heroes. Still, still listen to us, Mr. Matthew, even after Pod 5 has done taking us. That I am not sure, but one day, lulled in the future, someone will pick it up on an audio listening device of the future and say, what is this crap? This was Rhodes. not crap. This was sequel what? cast too. Rhodes? Well, we're going, Mr. Frodo. We don't need Rhodes. Oh, yeah. So that was me doing a, a shitty Shrek imitation, I guess. Um... But yeah, if you can't guess, you probably can't. Uh, we're continuing our discussion of the live-action Lord of the Rings films with Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Released in 2002, directed by Peter Jackson, produced by Peter Jackson, Barry Osborne, and Fran Walsh, with a screenplay from Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Stephen Sinclair, uh, based on the novel The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, we'll get into the controversy about that later. Starring a whole <laughs> bunch of people that were in the other film. Uh, but we've got some new cast members like uh, Miranda Otto and David Wenham. And, um, yeah, a big old cast here. Music, again, by Howard Shore. Cinematography, Andrew Lesney. Edited by Michael Horton and Yabez Olsen. This was distributed by New Line Cinema. Came out 2002, as I mentioned. Um, it made nearly $1 billion. And I'm just curious. Is that more than the first film? That's... Uh, that is, yes, a hundred million more than the first, which is surprising. Usually, the second film in a trilogy makes the least amount of money. Well, well, I mean, the, Lord, the Lord of the Rings picked up a lot of momentum, and I think I think a lot of the success of this film is attributed to, can be attributed to Andy Serkis as Gollum. Uh, yeah, Gollum, Gollum. There's different pronunciations, uh, certainly, but yes, yeah, I think. Uh, he you barely barely glimpse him in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. You might see his back or something, but he is up front and center uh, in not, in daylight scenes, nonetheless, and that's pretty risky. And you can say, well, didn't George Lucas do that with Jar Jar Banks just a few years before in '99? And while yes, that is the case, this movie is a real showcase of how much special effects advanced since Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, or for that matter, The Matrix. Uh, there was a lot more fine texture detail. Um, higher poly counts for characters and so forth. 
Well, we've had, you know, I, I guess for for lack, we st- I, I don't know if we if we still have a good a good name for this, but we had had, you know, virtual characters in films before, like like Roger Rabbit and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Well, okay, sure, but, yeah, but this I mean, this was the movie, rendered. Well, well, we this 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 movie was the movie that elevated uh, and motion capture had been used before, but this elevated motion capture to high art. Uh, yes, I mean, most famously, you know, motion capture, the guy that was really ahead of its time with it was uh, Ralph Bakshi, who, not coincidentally, did a Lord of the Rings animated film we discussed years ago on the original well, sequel cast program. Well, rotoscope is not the same as motion capture. It's not the same as motion capture, but it it's not totally dissimilar either. Um well, I mean, it, it is it is it is about transferring real human motion into a, uh, a a specific kind of animated medium, but the the methodology, the process, and 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 the purpose of it is completely different. Uh, listeners, just to clarify, uh, as I understand it, rotoscoping is you film um, live action actors doing stuff, and then you go over it with animation. You use that as a as a guide. I don't want to say trace because that's uh, a bit insulting, but. Um, no, I mean it's it's all it's almost always embellished, but that that is the essence of rotoscoping. And uh, how would you define motion capture? Uh, motion capture is when you use uh, when you use a computer to to track the motion of an actor and then translate that onto a CGI character. So, for, to to give a visual to the listeners, since this is an audio medium, they usually have people in sort of you know body stocking suits with little looks like little ping pong balls all around them, and they're running around on a blue screen. And then their physical movements are, um, because of all the electronics, captured in the computer onto a sort of crude 3D model. And then they, um, and it makes the animation look um, more realistic or pl- more plausible. But also that animation is massaged as well. It's not a, a one-for-one, um, you know, a usage of what the actor does dancing around the uh, blue screen set. Well, beyond beyond that, though, one of the one of the breakthroughs of Lord of the Rings uh, is that they didn't just have uh, Andy Serkis doing motion capture uh, in front of a green screen. They had him doing motion capture uh, in the field. That's right. And I think that results in the better um, in the in the convincing performances in this film between, uh, you know, the, the, the characters, the Bill, Bill and Sam and Gollum. And that they would, I, I believe, it's been a while since I've seen the documentaries on this, uh, but um, I think they filmed each scene like three separate times. So one, the actor was physically in the scene with um, Andy Serkis' Gollum in this sort of white stocking suit. Then they had to film it with him not there. And then they had to film separately in a soundstage, just uh, Gollum by himself uh jumping around doing stuff and they probably did uh, some blue screen stuff with the um elijah wood and sean astin as well so you're doing the vistas in these films blue screen is inevitable but it's it's really fascinating to see those photos of uh, like elijah wood in full uh in full frodo gear uh talking with andy circus in his ping pong ball body stocking with dots all over his face for motion tracking purposes with that that camera rig Right, and um, although they didn't have the technology in the Two Towers, but we'll see this uh, later uh, when we talk about the Hobbit films. Um, we're not doing that anytime soon, listeners, but at some point we'll talk about the Peter Jackson Hobbit films in more detail. Um, they'll get their own episodes, of course. Um, they actually have little cameras that come off a helmet that are pointed super close to the actors' faces to capture more facial animation detail. 
Um, and they, they did sort of a primitive version of that with two towers, but suffice to say, I think the, uh, the Gollum effects are, are pretty well done in this film. I have some problems with some of the other special effects, but uh, they, before we get into the movie, ho- Oh, go on. I say they, they hold up incredibly well for, for movies that are, uh, for movies that are over, over 10 years old. These, this, the, the effects for Gollum really do stick with you. So let's, um, before we sort of talk about our first experiences watching the film, I'm going to give my um, very brief, somewhat stupid summary. Uh, so <laughs> this time around, Frodo and Sam are decided to go uh, as, uh, you know, their, their bro-force team to uh, drop the One Ring into the Fires of Mount Doom as their quest, and uh, they sort of find out Gollum is following them, and they sort of uh, use him as, as a guide slash prisoner. Uh, meanwhile, uh, some other hobbits get involved with some talking trees, better known as Ents. <laughs> and also, we have a, a storyline, uh, sort of of the, the, the human, the dwarf, and the elf, going to uh, liberate a hypnotized king and to fight a large siege battle in the rain, and um, and zaniness ensues. That's a not very good description of what happens in this film, but suffice to say there's a lot. Um, the Fellowship, although they were formed in the original film, Fellowship of the Ring, and this one, you know, they're all separated. And, I mean, this was sort of a, a problem with the structure of the novel as well, in that it, it, it split up in... Even though it's one book, I think it's split up into like book three and book four or something along those lines. And one just focuses on the hobbits and one just focuses on the humans, more or less. Uh, I'm being a little bit pedantic, but I'm not completely wrong with that, I think, right? No, 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 you're not. So when did you first see this motion picture, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? Uh, I first saw it uh, opening weekend, and I believe I saw this in the theaters three times. Oh, wow. Um, Well... Well, this I'll get I'll get this out of the way of the entire Lord of the Rings film trilogy. This is my favorite of the three. Uh, in fact, at my uh, Twitter account at matwbt, uh, I ran a poll on which was the favorite in Two Towers One by far. Um, hmm. Which I, I don't think is surprising. I think it might have been. I don't know if it was the best reviewed, but a lot of the fans seemed to like it. Although there was some uh, somewhat mild internet controversy at the time that it wasn't exactly like the book. And uh, we'll get into that. But yeah, I saw this with my family, uh, with my dad, actually, over holiday break. And, you know, seen it with uh, my dad and my sister, a special, because he would read us the books when we were little kids out loud, which took several years. Um, but when I saw Fellowship of the Rain, uh, I don't think I mentioned this last time, I saw it with my mom and stepdad, uh, who don't give two shits about Lord of the Rings. And afterwards, <laughs> my stepdad said, uh, well, that was an OK movie, Matt, but uh, when do these guys have time to go to the bathroom? They, they do it in the woods like any civilized adventurer. Well, that's almost like a Family Guy joke, isn't it? I mean, it's it, it was yeah. just very uh, odd. But, you know, it, it was more special, um, frankly, watching it with my, my dad and my sister. And um, we really liked it. You know, I <laughs> I think uh, there was an excellent... I, I will... I, I had started... I had transferred to SCAD, I think, before this film came out, but not too long before... Uh, which is when we first met, and um, which was a lovely time. But the uh, you know with the the two towers, there was a lovely trailer that used a orchestral um, cover of a 
track from Requiem for a Dream. I'm leaving it off key, but it it was just really dramatic and focused on the the battle sequences. Um, And uh, so I I saw it initially uh, in the theater uh, when it came out, but then also I think the next year at college, uh, one of the the college uh, movie theater um, in Savannah, Georgia, did a double feature of Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. So I also caught it the second time there in the, nice. on the big screen, which was cool. Um, yeah, Two Towers. Uh, you mentioned this is your favorite. I would say my favorite is Fellowship of the Ring, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into it. So how do you want to talk about this? The plot is kind of all over the place. Um, and there's major differences between the extended and theatrical cut, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, I mean, really, we could just talk about sort of the different the different set pieces and vignettes because that's one that's one thing about this film is that it's all every 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 sort of this movie has like chunks that can kind of stand on their own but are still in some way interconnected with the other chunks. Yeah, it's episodic, right? I mean, you know, it is. It is almost like watching several half hour episodes of a Lord of the Rings uh, serial all uh, edited together. <laughs> I like marshmallows in my Lord of the Rings cereal. Um, so when you look at the timeline of when stuff happens, like this isn't events that are happened concurrently necessarily. And I don't think that matters, frankly, because they're in such different locations. But um, they had a very tough, uh, Peter Jackson and his other writers uh, had a very tough job um, adapting this book in particular, because so much goes on. How do you choose when to focus on one story, when to focus on another, uh, and so forth? Well, beyond that, it was so great seeing all these these characters interact as the Fellowship in the first film. It really is a shame that they spend most of this movie uh, apart. But that's the nature of adapting the material, but you're right. You don't get, aside from the Minds of Moria sequence, uh, and, and, and a little bit with that battle in the forest at the end, um, you don't get to see the Fellowship act as one unit. You're right. You, you get split up. And I think some of the stories in here are less interesting than others. Um, but we'll we'll get into that. Uh, I love how it starts, at least the extended version, has a... Uh, you get to see Gandalf the Grey fighting the Balrog as they fall. Quite an epic sort of Paradise Lost uh, moment. Well, it's 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 a way to start to start the the movie with a lot of visual bang. Yes, because we don't get action right off the bat, um, and we didn't in Fellowship really. But yeah, you have to do something to get people interested. Yeah, although I although in many ways I do feel like that that's superfluous because Gandalf's power doesn't come from his ability in combat. Right, and. Um... It also kind of gives away the surprise, doesn't it? Where oh, the, yeah, yeah. Because for if if you haven't read the source material, you can probably assume that Gandalf's dead. Although uh, as hey. as people should have learned by now, if you're watching something and you don't see the body, you can't assume that a character is dead. Well, and the trailers even spoiled that Gandalf came back, which was kind of cheeky. But I mean, yeah. it, this is this is a, a work of literature. It's based on a work of literature that was over fifty years old at this point. Or just about 50 years old. So, um, if you haven't read it, tough shit. 
<laughs> Which know. actually, like, so the first the first episode of this uh, series on the sequel cast, I talked about a satirical article that had been written about a novelization of Fellowship of the Rings. So when Return of the King came out, a uh, website I believe it was the now defunct bbspot.com, but I could be wrong, did uh, did an article about an article about how there's a book that has nothing but spoilers for the two towers. <laughs> and it was just this, this rant against the novel. It was fantastic. Yeah. So we get, uh, we mentioned some sort of the vignettes. Uh, why don't we initially touch on like the Frodo and Samwise uh, stuff with the Gollum? That, that is the creamy filling of this movie. Yeah, why don't we start the creamy filling and then work our way outwards? The that hard... is the way I prefer to eat eclairs. It is very difficult, but very worth it. Do you use a spoon, or you just sort of go in like an alien with your mouth instead of a mouth? Well, I have a proboscis. Well, okay, that makes it easy for you then. Um, so, yeah, start with the creamy filling. That's what she said. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, okay, dear. this is a weird episode. Um, already. Yes, yes, yes. So... Yeah, you mentioned Gollum looks good. The only thing about his design I'm not crazy about, I wish he'd look more monstrous. And I get that he originally was, and they don't get into this in this film, although it's revealed pretty early in the book, but they don't get into Gollum's origin. Uh, but he was a, um, I think basically a hobbit, right? And, yes, he was, um, he was a hobbit named Smeagol, who, hmm. while while fishing, just so happened to find the ring. Uh, and thought, oh, well, this is a nice ring, but became obsessed with it and was uh, eventually corrupted by it, which is how, over centuries, he became this decrepit, spindly, scraggly creature. And I think part of me not liking how he looks in these films is um, comes from growing up watching the 70s Rink and Bass Hobbit cartoon. Well, yeah, because like they, they made him look outright alien. Uh, yeah, and I quite like that. I think... Um, which, that is effective. I mean, if you really want to show, like, the twisting, corruptive power of the ring, that's the way you do it. But the th one the thing that I love about this particular portrayal of Gollum is that he has, you know, despite being a, a person driven to madness by the ring, he has a lot of humanity. He, he does, and we get, you know, Gollum has sort of a... Well, not sort of. He does. He has a split personality. Smeagol is his original sort of self, his good side, if you will. And then Gollum is the asshole. And there's a lot of scenes where he debates with himself. And they're some of the best scenes in the picture. Oh, they're wonderfully mind-bending scenes. Well, you know, you know I, I did some thinking about this. When it comes down to it, for with the, with the Gollum character... He, he is portrayed like a junkie. Uh, the, his relationship yes, yes, with the yeah. ring is a metaphor for addiction. That, uh, yeah, that's right. And um, to, especially, I, I love the scene, which became one of the earlier internet memes out there, of um, their, you know, Gollum is, is kind of kissing up to him. He, he brings him a fish, and he wants to eat it raw, but they cook it in a stew, and you hear the, him screaming. Oh yeah, go <laughs> not like being wanting raw fish. <laughs> must be raw. <laughs> must scene. be fresh. Yeah, and it's uh, no. Which it's is also great. just a great dichotomy between the essential domestic nature of the hobbits. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you see them constantly foraging for food, no matter what the situation. And I, I love that detail. You, you saw that in Fellowship. You see that again here. That's a nice uh, bit of business. And Sam tends to be the cook, so. Um, He's quite good at slicing up taters 
boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. That's another <laughs> meme that, that came from this one. Um, but, you know, Two Towers has a lot of internet, like, comedy music videos. And I'm not sure why that is, because it's a fairly serious film. I wouldn't say it's humorless, but... I'm wondering uh, if that's simply because this is the one most people saw, at least based on the box office. Um, I thought let me I thought Return of the King did better. Let me pull that up. And Return of the King did do a little, made two hundred more million dollars. But oh, um, okay, because it was the last one. I think people wanted to see how it ended. But um, but I, I do think you know so much of the the prior film Fellowship is set up. You could walk into the two towers without seeing the first one, and I think you'd do okay. You'd be a little bit confused, but... Well, as Wallace Greenslade used to say on The Goon Show, this is where the story really starts. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, sort of like Friday the 13th is where Jason became Jason with the hockey mask. This is where the true story begins. The other stuff was good flavor text, and I say that as a big fan of Fellowship, but yeah. Um, so with the, the, uh, the Frodo and Samwise story, I think isn't as huge of a, of a focus as you might think it would be in this picture. Um, but later in the film, we see that Frodo and Samwise and Gollum get captured by uh, Faramir. Who is, I think, the brother of Boromir. Is that right? I believe, I believe so, yes. Or they're related somehow. If, um, I, remember, if I remember from, from the books. And so, what do you think of that sort of sequence of the film? It comes later on, but I'm sort of sticking to the Hobbit story, then we'll sort of hop back and talk about the other plot lines. Um, well, I'm not... Of, of, all the, of all the stuff with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, the, st- the stuff where they're prisoners is the least interesting to me. Uh, if, if only because it's, it's such a treat just to see those three characters just wander, wandering, camping, and just, just forging ahead. Once they're taken prisoner and the brakes are put on that, it, it, it really slows things down. And uh, in the extended edition, we get a lengthy flashback showing Sean Bean again as Boromir, talking to Faramir, and then they talk to their father, who's a character in Return of the King. Um, I can't, I can't recall his name at the moment. Uh, and they, something mere. Yeah, something mere, probably. And um, they, you know, have a discussion. And uh, they. one of the many things Peter Jackson, um, when you do an adaptation of a novel into a movie, dear listeners, you have to sort of, you know, put your own spin on it. You can't do a literal adaptation because that would be boring or, I don't know, you, you just have to, what works for a well, book doesn't work books, for film. Books aren't movies, that's but it. Exactly, that's exactly as simple as that. Books are not movies. And um, so, I mean, one of the many inventions that's in here is to give a bit more family drama is they have Faramir, uh, he has a flash, he has one of a few flashbacks where he sees the dead body of his brother, uh, Boromir, or his relative, I I don't really care the specific detail about it, but, um, you know, coming down on the broken uh, sort of canoe they put him in, and uh, he said, oh, gee, my brother was such a good man, and why did you let him... And, oh, they knew my brother, why did you let him die? And then they reveal, oh, Boromir is trying to steal the ring from Frodo, don't you see? And, they, they you know, they try to give Faramir an arc, which I don't think is really earned or necessary. Um, you're, and I agree, this is sort of a slow part of the film, but also it, it goes into an action scene with the ring wraiths on these flying, uh, like, bat-dragon creatures... And it pales in comparison to the siege 
uh, on, um, you know, the siege at the end of the film. Yes. And you're, you're sort of, much like Return of the Jedi, you're cutting between three different uh, sort of action sequences, and this is the least interesting of them. Um, but uh, what do you think of some of the stuff where, you know, the, the scene where uh, Frodo is tripping out, and then Sam, you know, pushes him, and then Frodo draws a knife on his old buddy Samwise? Well, it's it's nice that now, now that we've we've introduced Golem and we've seen the toll that the ring can take on people. I liked it. We get that scene to remind us that 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 Frodo's not so innocent. He's starting to give into the ring, and and that and and I think and I think the reason that uh-uh. scene has so much impact is because we have seen the relationship between Frodo and Sam mature so much. And we've we've seen its depth. You know, we we feel that knife when it comes out. Right, and um, Sean Astin, I, I cannot stress enough how good of a job he does with Samwise. He has a lot of good speeches. He does a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, Frodo is just sort of, you know, out of it in a daze, sometimes literally. Yeah, lo- looking back on this series, part of me does feel like uh, feel like that is the Sam, Sam is overall the best performance in this film. As great as Gollum is, played by Andy Serkis, uh, Sean Astin as Sam, there's there's so much depth to that. I think my favorite performance might be uh, Vigo Mortensen as Aragorn. Hmm. He, he just has a lot of heart, and he, he's good at looking like he's thinking about something sad, uh, which he does a lot. I, I I don't that might be uh, I don't mean that as a slam necessarily, but it's he he's good at looking like he's thinking, which is something actors have a lot of problems doing sometimes. He, Without he never, constantly wiggling their eyebrows. Oh yeah, yeah. As as a Christopher Lee said on the uh, one of the documentaries for the Hobbit films, when he plays Sauron, he does a lot of eyebrow acting, <laughs> which uh, is absolutely true. Um, and if you like Sauron, you get your fill in this film. Uh, do you though? That's it's less than in the um, Fellowship, where you have the battle with Gandalf and. He has some speeches, I guess. He gives sort of like these Hitler speeches. Well, I guess like in, he, 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 there's there's a consequence to his presence in this film. He's actually up to something. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. As opposed to being like, we have a lot of bad guys. Ooh, we got more bad guys. This one has handprints on him. Yeah, it's, uh, I would like to speak portentously with you. Burn the trees, all of them. Yeah. Um, very, very good. Okay, so... Uh, Anything else you want to say about the uh, Frodo and Sam storyline with Gollum? Uh, no, I think I think we've covered that pretty well. Yeah, it, it's less of the film than you might expect. The way it ends is a big teaser for um, stuff with uh, Shelob in uh, Return of the King. And, um, oh, yeah, they actually... it is so sinister when he's leading him up into the mountains. Yeah. And you just get that, that, the camera pulls it on Gollum. I will take them to her. <laughs> and he's debating whether he should kill him himself, and he's like, oh, maybe she can do it. And uh, and if you haven't read the book, you don't know what that means. But if you have, that's a nice sort of bone to throw the audience. <laughs> because um, technically this movie ends well before the book the two towers ends there's a lot they cram into that final return of the king picture yeah and as i recall for the tolkien purist that was the greatest sin of this film uh yeah yeah i I saw a i think i mentioned this last episode but once at dragon con in atlanta georgia 
I saw a talk by um, a token scholar, and he said he was quite nervous when he finished watching the Two Towers because he's oh, like, the- they have a lot, they have a lot of a uh, lot more pipe to lay down in that last film. Although for for pacing purposes, I can understand why the confrontation with Shelob is pushed into the next film, only because we had a massive epic siege battle. A, a fight between uh, two hobbits and some spiders would be very anticlimactic after that. Uh, yes, and the battle is frankly a bit exhausting. But um, So what storyline do you want to talk about next? Do you want to talk about Pippin and Merry? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Okay, so and we get a lot more of their storyline, especially in the extended version. But um, they are taken captive by the by the orcs because the orcs thinks they're the hobbit with the one ring and they <laughs> sort of fake it to protect uh, to lead them off the wrong scent, right? Yes. And um, and then we get one of two sort of cheesy fake outs where you think a horse is going to trample the hobbits to death. Well, I think I think what it is is since uh, since Merry and Pippin aren't the big protagonist hobbits, uh, you're more likely to believe that they won't make it to the end of this trilogy alive. <laughs> sure, and it might have been more interesting had they killed one of them. Um, although, you know, for Tolkien purists, they would riot in the streets, but um, <laughs> that might have upped the stakes a bit. No, but I really yeah, don't they're... want to see any of them die. I think that would have been <laughs> that that would have been an interesting choice, but it would have been the wrong choice. So we we get um, a lot of humor that some found controversial. With the the orcs have this dialogue like "Oh, look, fresh meat here," and and stuff, and, uh, and sort of grim humor that's sort of Peter Jackson's wheelhouse, really. If you look at his earlier films. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna come on on Peter Jackson's side for this. Uh, he okay. he does he does grim humor very well. And if you're gonna put it anywhere in these books, you're gonna put it in the in the uh, in the mouths of orcs. Although that is kind of a that is it is almost more reflective of the way orcs are portrayed in media now as opposed to the way they were back uh, when these when the books were first published. Well, in in the books, the orcs don't have much of a personality, as I recall. They're sort of these mindless foot soldiers. Yeah, they're they're ju- they're just there they're just there to be menacing. But I, I like that they are given some depth of character, even if it's a very shallow depth. Right. Uh, they're they're not nice making them, them like yeah. They're not making them like next generation Klingons or anything. But uh, I mean, the, right. the more the more I care about the people who do the mindless killing, the more I'm going to care about the mindless killing they do. Well, here's a question for you, and uh, I don't know if you can give a short answer to this, but um, how are orcs portrayed in the Warhammer universe? Oh, wow. So <laughs> so the, or- the orcs are portrayed sort of in two ways simultaneously, and this is both... Uh, both in Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40,000, although much more so in Warhammer 40,000 with the two new editions of those games that are out now, they they oscillate between being the biggest, most gleefully brutal killers in the setting, but they're also typically where they put all the comic relief. Because they have, the, they give them this, to go along with their violent lifestyles, they're given this this devil-may-care attitude. You know, they're, just, they're just so obsessed with hitting hard and fast, they don't think or reflect on anything. Uh, and it, it it leads to some it leads to some not not gallows humor but it's like war, warfare is slapstick really is the best way i can describe it 
Okay, so sort of different from some of the dopiness of the orcs in Warcraft. Uh, yes, yeah. Even though okay, they both come from a similar place, because uh, because Blizzard Blizzard was founded by a handful of some of the original designers from Games Workshop. So a lot. Oh, of I them never knew that. A hand okay. in Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer Forty Thousand. Sure. It's just that they, rather than going Devil May Care in Warcraft, they did go with more kind of all, all shucks, dopey, combined with the ability to snap your neck with one hand. Oh, oh! I snapped his head off. Oh, oh. Yeah. Stop poking uh, me. Right. I guess I did more of the human. Ready for work. Yeah. Well, I could get that all day. Taboo. Hey, fun fact. The the orc language that was introduced in the very first Warcraft game, snippets of it are still used in every incarnation of Warcraft. That was the fake caveman language from the Ringo Starr movie Caveman. That's pretty funny. I didn't know that. Um, Zug, and and, and uh, Zug Zug is the caveman word for sex. <laughs> cool. Um, speaking of sex, you don't find any in the two towers. But you, um, you know, well, these aren't if, erotic thrillers. Although, what a world that would be if, if the two towers yeah. was an erotic thriller. As as the orc uh, grabbed Pippin, he felt hot breath on his neck and knew. Something was going to happen in the Fangorn Forest. Bodice is going to be ripped. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, back to the Sumerian Pippin, blah, blah, blah. They, you know, uh, uh, a melee battle breaks out, and uh, eventually they f- go into the forest and uh, run into Treebeard, leader of the Ents. And it turns out so, uh, quite a lot of trees are actually Ents, which are this living race, but they take a long time to decide things. And I really love the extra edge scenes we get in the extended ed- edition. Yeah, the the, the the original edition, like the the ants are, are great, but they they come and go in the story so quickly. Like it, you could in those scenes, even watching the theatrical version in the theaters, it felt like there was something missing. Yeah, and the ants um, are somewhat comic relief, and I'm sure there's some satire there that I'm missing, but. It's also nice that the story gets a moment to slow down and breathe, and it's not all uh, epic battles and heavy drama. Well, the thing the thing that I love about the Ents, and there's there's some nice world building in this, uh, is that you know they live for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, but they also live in a they live in they live like in the same way that trees live where like their, their world isn't divided up into nights and days like humans. It's divided up into seasons. Everything for them runs very, very slowly. That's the way they think. That's the way they talk, which leads to that great line. It takes a long time to say anything in end. It should be mentioned. John Reese Davies, who also plays Gimli the dwarf voices tree beard. And while he's a good Gimli, he's a great Treebeard. Oh no, he's great. He and the voice he does is so different from Gimli, and mm-hmm. so different from his sort of normal actory voice that I did not know that Treebeard was John Rice Davies until I saw it in the credits. There's like just it's it's he it's just enough of a distinct performance, and it's given just enough uh, post production treatment that. It sounds like something completely different. Yeah, you know, I recognized it only because I grew up playing the Wing Commander games, and in Wing Commander 3, he voices a Kilrathi as well. And um, it's a similar uh, treatment on his voice there. Oh, yeah. So, um, very similar sound. 
um, playing a cat alien as it is playing a, a, a anthrop- anthropomorphic tree creature. Um, but he just I, I, needs to do a talking fish, and he will have done the trifecta. Yep, and uh, you know the ants look good. They mainly look like trees, but different parts will break out and look like noses and mouths. It's not well, they too look like goofy they burst looking. Right out of a Hildebrandt painting. Right, no, it, it's beautiful. It's um, it, it could have been overdone and looked stupid, and it doesn't. And I give them credit for that. And the eyes uh, don't look great, but they look good enough. You, you get the idea. Um, I I was struck watching the film the first time that the trees had legs and walked. For some reason, as a kid reading the book, I imagine they shuffled, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But I guess I couldn't imagine. What does it does it make any walking. more sense than no, a tree it that doesn't. It doesn't. Walks. Right? No, it it make and you know you you have them do some action stuff uh, as they do in the book, and it 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 took me a bit to get used to it. I I guess I imagine them being fatter and not as skinny. Uh, mm as well but you know that's when you read you have your imagination and then when you see the movie what's on the screen is on the screen um uh one last uh thing i'm thinking about this uh gimli or sorry the uh mary and pippin stuff um you get some nice scenes where they're doing the siege on one of the two towers where christopher lee and uh grima warnton are and uh and a great scene in the extended version is they find uh, sort of like a, a storage food closet of Saruman, and it's filled with their beloved pipe weed from the Shire. And they debate whether to share it with... Uh, I mean, it's just a nice character moment. And it uh, they debate whether to share some of it with Treebeard, and uh, one of them says, like, no, it might be one of his distant relatives. And uh, it, it's just they're just sort of smoking up, relaxing, and finding all this fresh food because they're starving and being hobbits, they're obsessed with food. It's just such a great moment. You know what's something I love, and this this threads throughout all of these films, I, I love that there are numerous casual drug references uh, throughout throughout this film uh, it, for, on, on a number of, of levels. One, uh, I just, I like seeing, I like seeing pleasant characters use drugs responsibly. Uh, I also find that it's it's reflective on the place that the lord of the rings had in stoner culture in the 60s and 70s yes yes right uh, and then too it's it's also just it's nice to see it's nice to see a drug reference that doesn't go wacky or zany that it's just you know it's just right. portrayed as a as a normal thing that adults can indulge in yeah you don't see him hallucinate and pippin gets three eyes and a high pitched squeaky voice yeah it's not <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's not cartoonish. And we do uh, all know, this is confirmed in many interviews, we do all know that everybody on this film was blazing up after the shooting day was done. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I'm not surprised, but that's it's pretty funny. Um, uh, I, speaking of that, I, I recall in an interview, I always get Mary and Pippin confused because I'm a bad person, but um, Mary, played by Dominic Monaghan, uh, that actor fell into a deep depression after doing the Lord of the Rings films. And oh, wow. um, spent six months doing nothing but smoking a lot of weed and playing a lot of video games. And I think it, it might have even have taken Billy Boyd, who played Pippin, they became great friends in the film, and some of his family to uh, convince him to snap out of it and uh, get back to work. Because he thought, well, nothing I ever do will compare with Lord of the Rings. And he's not wrong. But on the other hand, you know, and later he made, uh, Dominic uh, Monaghan made, you know, had an appearance, played a, a big part in the Lost TV show. And he he played a small part in X Men Origins Wolverine, and he's done stuff since then. But um, to be that to be a young man 
and do Lord of the Rings so early in your career, I mean, you know that's going to be what you're going to be known for. That's going to be in your obituary, right? Yeah, I guess, I guess it feeling. depends because on, on the one hand, you know, because there, there, are, there are lots of people who their best or at least most memorable work came very early in their careers. But, you know, in, in, a, certain, in a certain way, though, that can be very liberating. Because, you know, okay, so like very early in the career, you played a ridiculously iconic role in the world's biggest film franchise. You can write your own check after that. Yeah, and I think um, Orlando... It would be awesome. Like, right. so he'll be making residuals for this movie, like big residuals for, well, really until he's dead. Um, the... Like that, that would that would free you up to to be able to do any crazy project you want, and you wouldn't have to worry about how that crazy project success or failure would impact uh, would impact you financially. Uh, yeah, that reminds me a bit of I was listening to a show called Sound Opinions. They were talking to uh, I think Penelope Spheris, the director of the original Wayne's World film, mm. and. Uh, Smartly, in, in those days, they had her contract where she got a, a big chunk of the gross, and she said she never has, had to work another day again. And she has. She directed the, uh, oh, I, I don't think I have this wrong. She directed the Little Rascals film. Um, she's, you know, her heart is really in doing the famous trilogy of music documentaries, The Decline of Western Civilization. Um, and she's done, you know, some sort of strange stuff over the years, and she's had that freedom because of that. So, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And and uh, also when people were in iconic films when they're younger, sometimes they resent it initially and then they come around to it. Um, well, that, famously, Mark happened. Hamill as Luke Skywalker, right? For for years and years. I don't, he didn't really poo-poo Star Wars, but in one, um, one interview he famously said, it doesn't matter what I do because at the end of the day, Lucasfilm is stamped on my ass. Uh, but of course, <laughs> you know, now he's in Star Wars 7 through 9, presumably, or at least 7 and 8. Um, well, I think, well, like in, in his like in his case, I think when Star Wars was done, I think he clearly wanted to move on to the next thing, and the next thing took over ten years when he finally became the Joker, uh, and his and he became one of the premier voice actors. Uh, well, and in not just and, that, but he moved his family to um, New York City and did uh, acting on Broadway and off Broadway oh, yeah. for for years, which didn't help his film career, but. He, you know, did a different path, and um, he's enjoyed it, and now he's sort of come back around. But I, I don't think he, you know, maybe he, I think he's a better voice actor than he is a film actor. And uh, this is getting into weird territory, but let's well, get back to it. I've always, well, I think it's simply because he, he never got the film, he didn't get a film career. He only That's got right. a voice yeah. acting career. Right, he didn't get the Harrison Ford stuff, yeah. Uh, I would sure. love to see what kind of performances he could have turned in if he had continued uh, to work heavily in film through the 80s and the 90s. Although that being said, uh, his voice acting career is amazing. I would not trade that for anything. Uh, as I understand, one of the roles he was really, I think he still hurts a bit at not getting, was um, uh, the lead in Amadeus because he played the national touring production of uh, Amadeus uh, in the lead and was supposed to be quite good. In fact, the Joker's laugh was influenced by one of his laughs he did in character as Amadeus, who laughs constantly throughout the play uh, and the film. <laughs> but of course, in the film as Amadeus, we had Tom Hulse of um, Animal House fame. Although, you know who the runner-up for the lead in Amadeus was? Tim Curry. Uh, no, although Tim Curry played him on Broadway. 
with Ian McKellen, uh, it's a Lord of the Rings reference, as uh, Salieri, which oh. that would have been something to see. Um, but for the film, they strongly, they almost, uh, Dana Carvey almost played Amadeus. Really? Yeah, would... I heard that in an interview recently and my eyes popped out of my head. I, I could not believe that. Would that Dana been... Carvey would have been quite good. Um, would that have been uh, before or after he had joined the cast of SNL? I'm trying to piece the timeline together. Uh, before, early 80s. So, um, I mean, Dana Carvey's older than he looks, too. He started doing stand-up in the early 70s in San Francisco. Uh, but, yeah. So, um, I, I anyway, back to Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Uh, so we have covered the, the storylines of the Hobbits, you know, the one, the A, the, what some might consider the A story, but here it's really more like a B story of Frodo and Sam. You get the C story of Merry and Pippin and the Ents. And uh, we get, what I think is the main thrust of this film is the story of the humans, right? Or not just the humans, but you also get the Legolas and Gimli as well. Yeah, and I think, and I think this is why this is... My my favorite film in this trilogy, it's the, it's the most grounded. It's it's the one that has the least time to deal with with over the top fantasy aspects and and what few fantasy aspects there are really comes comes straight up down to the characters. I mean, this is really more like Games of Thrones, right? Uh, in, in its in its way, because there there is there is a certain amount of politicking going on. Right, I mean, given that, of course, Lord of the Rings came out way before Game of Thrones, but I'm just saying, as far as tone goes, the human stuff is political backstabbing and intrigue and character drama. Uh, not not as much incest as Game of Thrones, but you well, never know. Well, speaking of that, though, if, you're, if your name is Grimma Wormtongue, can you get <laughs> any job other than Creepy Vizier? Isn't Brad Dourif excellent in this movie, though? Oh, I mean, my God. Great. You know, he's perhaps best known as uh, the voice of Chucky in those uh, Child's Play horror films. But um, also, as a young man, he's uh, in, oh my God, what's the name of that? Uh, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? He played um, one of the, he played the evil Mentat in David Lynch's Dune. I mean, he's done, <laughs> he's had a rich, rich career. But as Grima Warntund, I mean, that name screams villain, and uh, Brad Drift can do slimy really, really well. And they just make him look gross in this, and he talks gross, and his hair is gross. Like, it's just, uh, it's exactly as I imagined from the book. <laughs> I, I take, you know, I said my favorite performance might have been Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn. I take it back. It's Brad Drift as Grima Wormton. Such there's, a slimy there's... son of a bitch. There's no <laughs> subtlety to it whatsoever, and that no. only makes it better. <laughs> yeah, it, he, um... And, and yet, you know, it's not, I, I don't think it's extremely, ham, it, it's not as hammy as it could have been. Like, can you imagine Tim Curry as Grima Warren? <laughs> like, I don't think that would have worked at all. But Brad Drift, well, it's not he, pantomime. It's not a it, pantomime at Yeah, it's all. not a panto. But uh, Brad is Grima Warren, you know, he's, I mean, it's almost Shakespearean, I think. He's whispering in the ear of uh, the king who, Theodore, who's played, yeah, by, who's played by Menard Hill. And, um. Who, who has a great transformation because, like, he he, he, looks, yeah. he looks like he's dead when he's under Saruman's mm -hmm. mind control. But when Gandalf liberates him, he he looks like a wise and sagely king. And it's a good mixture of practical and computer effects uh, to make him look in that zombified state. And, and it's very satisfying to see Theoden, uh, you know, come snap out of it and come back to life. So we get this. Uh, I also find the the human. Um, I say it's a human storyline, and that's sort of accurate. 
the main storyline, I guess, in this film is um, they do a good job of keeping it straightforward. It's not extremely convoluted. And that they're marching along, they, they see the the Knights of Rohan, who are known for riding on horseback. Um, we get a bit of a loose love triangle. They don't get into it too much with Eowyn, played by Miranda Otto, and Aragorn and Arwen. But Arwen really isn't in this film. Although, you know the trivia about that, right? About why she's not in the film? or Yes. Uh, actually, no, I did not. I, I always figured it was just because, she one, she shows up in the book, but two, they wanted to do a better job of setting her up for uh, the third film. So, um, there's the big fight at Helm's Deep at the end, right? The siege. Right. The... the I would say it's like the, the, best equ- like the best action sequence, at least, in the film. Very moving, all this stuff. Originally, when the uh, the elves kind of charge in with Gandalf at the end, um, Arwen was to be with them, and they filmed a lot of action scenes with Arwen. Hmm. But um, in one of the early trailers, you can notice it, and uh, the OneRing.net, uh, they were one of the first sites ever to do this. It might have been the first site, as far as I know. Um, did a scene-by-scene trailer breakdown that was like 10,000 words or something ridiculous. <laughs> and they pointed out, and they thought, and when people realized Arwen was in the Battle for Helm's Deep, the internet um, exploded, and because of people complaining, they cut those scenes right out of the film. Really? Yeah. Are those films uh, inserted in the uh, extended edition? Nope. Uh, I think you can see a little bit of them, and they talk about it in the documentary, like uh, uh, Liv Tyler is very upset and crying about it because she did a lot of combat training, and you don't get to see it on screen. Um and do you think that would have taken you out of the moment, or do you think it would have been, you know, a moment of inspiration for Aragorn to see his love? I I would probably side with moment of inspiration. Yeah, uh, I I would have been interested to see what it was like, and I don't know if it's, you know, internet uh, if it's sexism with people like oh, a girl can't be in a fight scene, or I don't know, man. Like it's it could be it could also be people wanting it to be a slavishly faithful, faithful adaptation to the, of the source material. Sure, and it's Although, probably both. You know, although I, I, either way, it, it kind of it, it, it robs the film of what could have been a very interesting moment. Now, we do get a brief moment with Arwen where we get, I think it's kind of a dopey fake out, uh, in my opinion, where uh, Aragorn falls off a cliff. Oh, you think he's dead, but no, he, you know, sort of lands and has this uh, tripped out vision quest of what happened if Arwen would have... Uh, decided to stay with him instead of going out to the what is it called where the elves you know go on the boats yeah instead of going to the gray havens um she would have stayed with him and gotten old and it's a bit of sort of a highlander moment i think Hmm. do you you like those sequences or what do you think it it, i mean there's there's some humanity in those sequences but I don't like dream sequences. You've hmm. already got a, you're already got a, a movie set in a fantastical world. You don't need to waste time with dream sequences to show to show more stuff that could have been. Yeah, it takes you out of the story. You get a whole you get a, a decent helping of Arwen in the first film. I um, I would have rather seen her in the action sequences really than than this sort of romantic flashback. Um, we didn't touch on Miranda Otto as Eowyn, who she has a small part in this. She has a bigger part in the next film, Return of the oh, King. Oh, yeah. And she's very good. Uh, she has a toughness to her. She um, holds her own, and she doesn't get to do much fighting and, and so forth. But um, 
her flirtation with Aragorn is kind of nice to see. It's some gentle moments before all the crazy uh, battle sequences. Um, speaking of which, you know, what do you think of the Battle of Helm's Deep? That is a great sequence. It 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 it's it sort of combines like a, what you would what you'd feel you'd get in a real medieval siege with uh, with some swashbuckling action and just seeing seeing the orc army of my dreams assaulting that fortification. It's 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 the kind of thing that I've always wanted to see in a fantasy film. Yeah, and um, you know, for the wide shots, it's computer generated and there's even some computer it's a good usage mix of computer and practical effects um in there we get some humor with uh gimli and uh, legolas having a contest of how many people they can kill which yeah which ends up continuing to the uh into the uh third film which th- that's a kind of that's a kind of competition that I, I like because it sort of reveals it sort of reveals character between them. What I don't like is the comic relief earlier on where Gimli is where they find all these weapons in Helm's Deep and Gimli's trying on armor and he's wearing that ridiculously oversized uh, suit of chainmail that he's bunched up. Yes, or you have it where you can't see over the edge of the uh, bridge. It's just bad. It's just bad slapstick and short jokes. I mean, because unfortunately, um, Legolas and especially Gimli don't have much to do in these movies. We, I think, in the the siege, uh, watching the sort of making of materials on this stuff, um, what what I thought was interesting was uh, when they first cut it together. They thought something was missing, and so they went back and refilmed, uh, did pickup shots, which is quite common in films, but they did pickup shots to get close-ups of the civilians inside Helm's Deep. So when it cuts oh, away, yeah. and that makes a big difference, I think, because you see the little kids and the old women, and you get the sense they're fighting for something, and it's a, a good emotional beat to cut to, as opposed to, you know, nonstop. The battle sequence at Helm's Deep, it's great, but it's also kind of exhausting. Like, it goes on for a while, it's intense. Yeah. It's dark. Heads are getting chopped off. Well, it's it's. I mean, it really is. I mean, it 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 shows that this this is not just uh just a fun fantasy fight sequence. Uh, there there are consequences, and I like that acknowledgement that in siege warfare, lots of people's lives are at risk and lots of people suffer. I love too that we have an orc that's armed with like gunpowder or dynamite. Yes, or some I was going to bring that up. The acknowledgement <laughs> of gunpowder in this film that Saruman does some alchemy and makes a bomb to breach the defenses of Helm's Deep. And I love that bit where he's explaining his plan to to Wormtongue and Wormtongue just walks right up to the bomb and like holds a torch over it to get a better look and Saruman is trying to brush him away. <laughs> it's a it's it's a good moment. I think too we get um Oh, it's I, it gave me a, a little vibe of Looney Tunes for some reason, but it's it's like a suicide bomber moment, and it's quite a nice explosion that shakes up the battle. Then we have Gandalf the White, of course, um, come in, which is a good moment of he's on Shadowfax, I believe. Oh yes, um, riding into battle. Um, we we get you know there's speaking of stuff they invent for the film. Some of the business with Legolas is a, a bit too flashy. He basically skates down a staircase on an upside-down shield while shooting a bunch of dwarves. 
Yeah, or, that, that's not, not dwarves, but orcs. And it's cool, but it's almost like, what is he going to be in a skateboard and wear sunglasses and smoke a cigarette, saying "Get out of here, man!" Like I don't well, know. Yeah, the, the only the only thing missing is a, is a guitar riff. Yeah, air guitar. Yeah, it's it's just it's a bit too hip, and uh, we we get a better moment earlier on where. They're running, and uh, Legolas sort of like, uh, it's a CG Legolas, obviously, but sort of like does this backward flip onto the horse. And that I'm okay with, but the, the skateboarding down the the crowd surfing uh, bow and arrow business is not my favorite. <laughs> oh, and this is also, uh, this film is one of the, the, the few times we really get to see Gandalf use magic when he casts the fifth level wizard spell break enchantment on uh on uh, Theoden. Oh, earlier in the film. Yeah. Influence. Yeah, it's it's a good moment, it's a good effect, a good gradual sort of reveal and it, you know, it... Well, I also like that it's not flashy. There's no like lightning shooting into or out of anyone's eyes. It's just mm-hmm. like a subtle glow and you can just see the 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 the, the clash of wills between Gandalf and Sauron. It really is something uh, something special, and I think you're right. Like any of the magic in these films are is fairly restrained. Even the wizard battle and Fellowship of the Rain, it's, it's just sort of people getting thrown around. It's not um, you know things getting destroyed everywhere. Um, so I mean, how do you think this movie ends? Because it's the middle film in a trilogy. It's always tricky to have a satisfying ending. Well, the the whole the whole Battle of Helm's Deep I find very very satisfying, and then just the the stinger with the hobbits walking away with Gollum talking about how he's going to take them to her. Uh, it's it avoids having a darker than dark ending like uh, like uh, the Empire Strikes Back, but it does it does a good job keeping the momentum going so that we know that we're going to be going into an exciting film when the trilogy concludes. Yeah, and ending with the Frodo, Sam, and Gollum stuff I think is is smart because we definitely get much more of that story in Return of the King. And in, in the end, it is focus. their trilogy. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, this is my favorite of... I would say Fellowship is my favorite film, but this is my favorite of the extended versions. I love all the end stuff. Mm. And... Um, the flashback with Boromir is okay. It kind of slows down the film a bit, but it's nice to see Sean Bean do some more acting because uh, he's not in the first film that much. And, um, yeah, I think uh, anything else you'd like to talk about? The Two Towers? No, I think I think we've, we've pretty well covered it. Yeah. Um, so I, I give Lord of the Rings The Two Towers a sequel, yes. It has Unqualified a, sequel, yes. Yeah, it has a difficult task. And that this is where the story really starts. There's a lot going on, but we get a, an epic battle sequence that in some way is so good it hurts the third film. But we'll get into that <laughs> next week. And uh, also we get um, Gollum and, and all those those moments and a fun performance by Andy Serkis that it is at turns comedic and uh, sometimes moving and threatening. He gets a lot to work with. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of the best of what a fantasy movie can be. Okay. Aside from self-contained. <laughs> yep. So with that in mind, let's do pitch a sequel. Okay. My idea would be uh, to do a film that is uh, about a 
a young Samwise in Hobbiton. It'll all be set in Hobbiton, and, and young Samwise uh, is involved in a cooking contest because he loves to cook and he loves to eat. And so it'd be a, a light comedy with the uh, hobbits cooking, and you know, one of the main contestants would be a member of the Proud Feet family with giant feet. And uh, it would, um, you know, aside from Bilbo and Gandalf popping up here and there, it'd be a very light tie to Lord of the Rings, but sort of a nice comedic antidote after the seriousness of the two towers. And a side story, if you will. And it would be called The Lord of the Rings, The Two Muffins. Because <laughs> they're trying to see who can cook the best muffin, you see. Is it Samwise or is it, you know, someone proud feet? Well, I think my uh, my picture sequel is going to be Lord of the Rings: The Dwarves of Old, ah, and okay. it's uh, it's also going to be uh, to be a prequel. It's going to be it's going to be about because uh, th- this is the the thing with they pile throughout throughout this trilogy. Gimli accumulates so much comic relief baggage that I feel I feel like that the the strength of that character is completely lost. So right. this this prequel is going to be a mostly straight and serious portrayal of Gimli, uh, and it's going to be uh, just a chronicle of Gimli uh, uh, testing his metal uh, as uh, as a as a dwarf warrior. Uh, you know the the movie begins uh, the movie begins with uh, his father Gloin from the Hobbit. You know teaching him mm. help helping you know, giving him axe lessons. Uh, we see Gimli go off and fight some orcs. We see him help defend the dwarven holdfasts. Uh, and we just we get to see we get to see Gimli be a competent warrior. We get to see him be the character who who dispenses the jokes rather than being the butt end of the jokes. Uh, and it all and it all ends with uh, him being handed the heavy honor and responsibility of representing the dwarves in the Fellowship of the Ring. So it ends with him leaving to join the Fellowship. Ah, okay. So. Pretty neat. And uh, you would um, have a lot of orc battles then? Yeah, and I would try to make them... I would I, I would want the gore effects in those battles to be worthy of Peter Jackson's early work. I see. So just cool. fountains of blood, severed yeah, yeah. limbs, real, real messy violence. It would be like an R-rated picture. Yeah, I think it would have to be, and which means, hey, hardcore dwarf nudity, both frontal and backal. That that would be uh, interesting. It looked like a couple of cousinettes going at it. <laughs> okay. Sounds like it too. <laughs> Very good. So um, you know, we uh, next week we'll be talking about Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. Let's go on to what you're watching. But before we do, I'm going to insert. A brief clip here. I was recently at Rose City Comic Con in Portland, Oregon. Cool. We went to a panel with um, John Delancey. Nice. The actor that played Q. And I had the pleasure of asking him a question, although he seemed irritated by my question. Well, that's only fair. So uh, let's uh, let's play the clip. Yes. If you could perform any uh, book on tape, what would it be? If you could do a variation of any book, what would you like to do? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I'm very dyslexic, so, you know, the minute you say that, I, I, inside of me, my tension level goes... <laughs> like that. So, you know, they're, they're, uh, it, it, I, I'm not looking forward to reading a book. <laughs> I mean, I read a lot, but not for... I mean, 
no, no, there's some people who are fantastic at it. And I am really down there. So I, I, I can't, I can't tell you. Cool. <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that interesting? <laughs> and the way he reacted when I asked him the question, if you could do uh if you could do an audiobook for any book what would it be and then he mentioned his dyslexia and how that gets him nervous it was a, just a wonderful moment well that's 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 something i've got too so it's it's nice to hear him speak openly about that yeah i i was originally going to ask him about star trek video games but three people in front of me did um one thing that surprised me he got a lot of questions about a role he played on my little pony the new the newer version oh discord yes yes Several Discord questions from little kids, and he was um, uh, he was doing his best at trying to come up with different answers to the same question over and over again. <laughs> Did you like he, Discord? Did you like bad Discord or good Discord? He's like, what do you think? I don't know. No, what do you think? Like he 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 was he was um, pretty funny. Had a good sense of humor about it, and um, hopefully, listeners, you enjoyed listening to that clip as I covertly recorded me asking we better try to do more of those yeah yeah i think so um i i do regret years ago i was at a convention with john and joan cusack were the people at the panel i should have waited in line because i wanted to ask joan cusack the question how tasty were the applesauce sandwiches on the set of toys (laughs) but um those are applesauce doesn't look like applesauce on film so that was actually a mixture of uh uh, a mixture of uh, Vaseline and soy sauce. Is that true? No, I made that up, but, but it, it, sounds it could like, be it true. Sounds yeah, true. That's what's important. I mean, there's a lot of things that don't look good in film, like raisins, for instance. Don't look looks like dirt on film. Um. Anyway, <laughs> what you're watching, uh, Thrasher? What have you been watching? All right, so uh, I I watched a a horror anthology film uh, called Charlotte. Okay, so what sort of an anthology is it? Well, it's well, that's that's part of the problem. So you know, very very often in an anthology film, the quality is is inconsistent. Mm-hmm. This is ostensibly supposed to be sort of a, a, a tongue in cheek horror anthology, although you don't realize that until it starts. Um, everything on the streaming services seems to indicate that it's straight up uh, horror. Mm. But the framing device is a woman is like house sitting at a friend's house, and she. She's talking. She's having a phone call with her friend. She said, yeah, the house is great. Except that creepy doll you've got on the shelf. It's like it's always working, looking at me. And the person on the other end of the phone's like, I don't own any dolls. And then the doll comes to life and like ties the woman to the couch and is slowly turning the woman into a doll. But the TV is on, and the TV is what shows these uh, horror scenes. And the the problem is. Whatever one of the vignettes is serious, it's boring as hell. It's boring and it's not scary and it takes itself way too seriously. Whenever the vignette is is more humorous or comical, even when it's not funny, it's still very entertaining <laughs> because it because it gets so goofy. So the quality of the shorts varies so much. And, and even then, I'm not sure that the enjoyment that I got out of the out of the funnier sequences was the enjoyment that they intended that I get. And so many bad, bad tw- like twist endings. The the final the uh, final segment, which is all set like at a movie theater showing an old horror movie, 
it the it starts out feeling like a really good Tales from the Crypt comic, and then it ends like a very very bad Tales from the Crypt episode, where they just try to pile on twist after twist after twist. Hmm. I uh, so it doesn't sound like you're recommending this one. Not really. Like it's it's only half good. It might be if if you're if you. Uh, are are having like a little movie party and everybody's drinking or enjoying some of that uh, Hobbit and Pipeweed. This could be very very fun to watch with a with a crowd that's willing to crack jokes and laugh. Uh, but on its own, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I admit the wraparound story is kind of interesting sounding. Well, the wraparound story doesn't get in the way of anything, and you do get to see the woman's slow transformation. Some of the effects of which are good some of them aren't they do this one kind of interesting thing because they the doll the doll uh you hardly ever see move when the doll moves at all it's something really really minor like its eyes blink or its head turns or its arm moves up or down but they keep cutting to the doll using the tv remote whenever they cut to the doll using the tv remote it's an extreme close up of a toddler's hands on a remote control <laughs> and it's so bizarre mm. uh it, it it's actually pretty it, it works okay um anything else you've been watching or playing or uh we'll see well we talked about uh we talked about mass effect andromeda last time didn't we we did yep Yes. The oh, actually, uh, I have been uh, I have been uh, started a, a book. I've been working my way through the works of uh, Jack Vance, who was a who was a, a writer uh, in the uh, really in the, the the from the fifties through the eighties, uh, and he's most well known for his Dying Earth stories, which are ostensibly fantasy but have kind of a post-apocalyptic sci-fi feel to them they were heavily influential on a lot of on a lot of modern fantasy authors particularly uh gary gygax when he when he and dave arneson uh created D&D, the magic system in D&D is, is lifted in whole cloth from the, the Dying Earth series. But I'm, I'm reading the final book in his Dying Earth a series called Rialto the Magnificent. And it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting experience because uh, Jack Vance writes really good scumbags. Okay. And Rialto is not ostensibly a scumbag, but the, the conflict that he's involved in the whole the whole story so far, and I'm only about a, a quarter of the way through the story. It is so outrageously sexist that I can't tell whether it actually is sexist or whether it's trying to be a satire of sexism in fantasy. It's from the fifties, you said. Well, this particular book was from the eighties. Oh, hmm. Yeah, yeah. He 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 wrote up. Uh, he he wrote up a, until his death, and he has a pretty pretty long career. So the die the dying the first dying Earth novel or uh, story short story I believe was published in the late fifties, and uh, nineteen eighty four or five is when uh, he wrote Rialto the Magnificent. Do you know if he meant this to be the final book, or did he have another one planned? Uh, I think actually, let me check. I think he died shortly after. Let me. Uh, okay. Let me do a quick check on that. I could because I I could I could be wrong. Um, let me see. Oh, no. No, he died in 2013, and he wow. was still very active up until 2009. So whether he intended it to be the last Dying Earth book or not, it flat out was. I see. Does it look like it's... Well, I guess you can tell me when you finish it if it looks like it wraps some things up or is a satisfying ending to the universe. 
Um, well, I mean, technically, the final sh- the final Dying Earth short story is a satisfying ending to the universe okay, in that particular setting. But but I, yeah, I'll let you know when I when I get to the end of the book, I'll let you know what my impressions are. But that's that's been the real puzzle. I can't tell if it's a if it's a sexist fantasy novel or if it's a satire of sexist fantasy novels. I kind of felt that way reading um, the first book in Piers Anthony's um, Xanth. Oh, not Xanth, but it it's like. Diary of a Space Tyrant or something. Oh, memo- uh, yes, Memoirs yes. of a Space Tyrant, I think. Yeah, I couldn't even make it halfway through the first book. Hmm. And it was, um, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was sexist, but it just was very, um, the tone struck me as very strange. Um, and being somewhat vague on purpose. Okay, so I saw some movies recently. Um, yes. One was a sequel that was not nearly as bad as I thought it would be, and I'm talking about Bad Santa Two. Oh wow! It has uh, Kathy Bates is the role of a new character, is the mom of the titular Bad Santa, played by Billy Bob Thornton. They got the 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 actor that's his elf friend. They want to do you know one one more gig. Um, my wife thought it's mainly repeated jokes from the first one, which it is, but I think they're funny. It keeps the humor dark and mean. Um, sadly, you know, John Ritter, the original Bad Santa, was one of his last films. And, of course, he's not in this one. It would have been nice to uh, see his son, I think Josh Ritter, play a part but um, in this, but he doesn't. Uh, Bad Santa 2, it takes place in Chicago. It's a... Uh, it's a heist movie that's pretty lazy about the heist part. I, I sort of like how... I, I like the sloppiness of Bad Santa 2. And I, I there was enough laughs for me to, to mildly recommend it. How How is Kathy Bates? Because I love that Funny. as a, as a actress, yeah. she's just willing to do anything. Well, right. And there's a scene... I mean, you might be thinking of... Um, oh, what's the Jack Nicholson one? About Schmidt? Oh, yes. Right? In this one, there was a scene where she's watching... Uh, her One of her character traits is she watches reality television. She watches The Bachelor or something. And she's in the bathroom taking a dump. We see they go into... They're staying at her apartment as they're... Um, her house as they're playing the heist. They walk in. The bathroom door is wide open. Her, her panties are around her ankle. She's in the middle of taking a dump. And she has her TV set up right in the doorway. So she can't miss her series. And it's just, uh, and everyone is grossed out, but she's like, what? I'm watching my show. I got to figure out which asshole gets the chick. And, uh, so I, I like, she, she goes right into the scuzziness with everyone else. And I just like how, how mean Bad Santa is. And is it as good as the first one? Of course not. But it, it could have been a lot worse. The trailers made it seem really boring. And, um. I was pleasantly surprised. I guess I came with low expectations. Well, I remember in the days of, of uh, the original sequel cast, you, you had a story you told about working in a video rental store and how much how how many complaints you all got when parents rented Bad Santa thinking it was a children's movie, only to find out it was an R-rated comedy. Right. Uh, even the, the cover art, I think of the original, had Santa with a beer in his hand. With Billy yeah, Bob I mean, he Thornton, look, he looking, looks like an alcoholic washout, <laughs> which is what the character is. And uh, yeah, people would do Bad Santa for kids a lot. Um, I think my favorite story along those lines is we had um, a oh, 
uh, I think an Indian family and uh, their their English was was okay but they were looking for something for the kid and they picked something from a new release and it was a direct video horror movie called Spider and they're like this is good for kids right the spider I'm like no 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 I, the Spider Man yes the spider right no. yeah maybe that's what they were thinking come to think of it but it was yeah we'd get a lot of stuff like that or we we even had um <laughs> People want us to make bootleg videos for them for cash. It was oh, quite. Wow. Uh, some people were quite upfront about it. It was quite interesting. So uh, I got. I got to ask the people who asked you all to make bootlegs. Uh, do you think they were serious, or do you think it was one of those secret shopper things where they do that to see whether they can whether they can get anybody to do it so that they someone can get fired or sued? No, I, I think they were serious. I, I felt bad for them. There were people with with large families that didn't have a lot of money. That the father was working eighty hour weeks at like five different jobs, mm. and they couldn't afford a videotape, and they're just looking for a break. Um, I didn't do it, of course. Other people might have, but um, the other thing I saw is a movie that's a, a remake that's one of a duology. I'm talking about It. I saw that uh, this opening weekend in the theater. Oh, how was it? How was it? Ha, ha, ha. Um, I, I liked it. You know, it, it they instead of... The, the book and the uh, miniseries from the 90s both jump back and forth between the kid and the adult storyline before the movie... Uh, which it's going to be two movies, I think, or it might be three, considering how successful this first one was. And part that... of the shared Castle Rock universe. Uh, yes, which Castle Rock is getting its own series on Hulu, which kind of blows my mind. I don't know how the hell they're going to do that. Um, but yes, you're absolutely correct. Also, there's supposed to be a Dark Tower series, despite the fact that the movie fell on its ass. So Which which is somehow supposed to tie into the Castle Rock series. Don't, that, this is a, a long, separate conversation, but yes. Special um, every, episode worthy, yeah. Everything is connected, as they said in one of the trailers for the Dark Tower. Um, it, uh, this movie wisely focuses on just the kid stuff, which I think was a really smart move. Um, one of the actors is from Stranger Things. I didn't recognize um, any of the other actors in here. Um Instead of the the kid stuff taking place in the fifties, it's in the eighties, which I'm 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 fine with as long as you don't set it in a time period with cell phones. I think you can make it believable where kids are riding bicycles and going in the woods and, and horsing around. Um, a, a lot more bloody than the miniseries. Um, it's it's pretty close to the book. I don't think the we can talk a bit about. Um, do you mind if I talk about Pennywise in the movie a bit, or is that going to spoil something? No, no, not not for me. Go right ahead. Uh, okay, so listeners, if you're, although we open every episode of Sequel Cast Two now with a spoiler disclaimer, I'm just going to talk a bit about the portrayal of Pennywise in the movie, and if you think that's a spoiler, uh, skip ahead eh, five minutes just to be safe. Um, so the actor, I'm going to look this up. In in the original miniseries, Tim Curry played Pennywise, and he did it with an inconsistent Brooklyn accent, as only Tim Curry can do. He's like, "How you doing, Georgie?" Beep, beep. Hello, kids. Right. Beep, beep. It's a very... Of course, I look up IT, or I look up IT in Wikipedia, and it brings me to information technology. <laughs> Moron. That would be a whole different movie, although wouldn't it be great? An alien murder clown working in IT. I've capped your bandwidth. Beep, beep. <laughs> uh, Usually yeah. you can just fix this by turning it off and on. So we have Bill Sarsgaard plays Pennywise the Clown. He's an actor. He is the, um, oh, geez. 
yeah, his brother is Alexander Skarsgård, who's best known as the, the blonde uh, vampire Eric from True Blood. But his father is also a well-known Swedish actor, Stellan Skarsgård, who uh, listeners might know being from the Thor movies as sort of the crazy doctor. Oh, yes. He's, he's a dumpy-looking man. He's also bootstrap Bill Turner in some of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. He's um, So anyway, you know, he comes from good acting stock. Uh, for what that's worth, and he's only 27 years old. Um, I like the kids in the movie look like real kids. Uh, the bullies that's look good. like people in their late 20s, but that's fine. Do they um, talk like, do they talk and act like kids? Or is it too twee? They, uh, smartly, they, it's like a, almost like a Robert Altman film. They're talking over each other all the time. They're interrupting each other. It feels real. I I was, and, and they make some changes uh, from the book, I haven't read it in a while, and the book's like a thousand, over a thousand pages, actually. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, I, I was pretty happy with how they, they dealt with it, but uh, in the original, in the, I don't recall in the book, but in the original miniseries, uh, Pennywise the Clown isn't in it that much. And in this one, they double down on the clown. Oh, yeah. Which is, which looked, I, I think, judging somewhat by the irritating. campaign and the, the trailer, that's the sense that I got. Uh, also, how, what do you think of the clown design? Because I feel like they try too hard to make him look like a terrifying murder clown from a ripoff of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, because it already looks creepy, um, that what Tim Curry was doing in the other one is more subtle. He looked like Bozo the Clown, but that, that he can have a smile on his face and be threatening while sounding nice and saying nice things. And, and it, it really... Um, I don't think the clown was... I thought the clown was creepy in the original. And I don't really... And he's less creepy, I think, in the new one. I don't think he's scary. I didn't really... I thought the the movie was sort of spooky, but I never jumped in my chair. Nothing really... None of the gotchas really got to me, except maybe the the level of blood and gore, which I was I was fine with. I think that works. The book is extremely violent. Um, but, you know, there's the initial famous scene where... Pennywise is talking about um, he's luring little Georgie into the uh, into the what into the vent or not the vent? What am I talking about? Into the sewer, right? And he he's trying to be pleasant, and he, and Tim Curry is as you did in the imitation so well. It's like how you doing, Georgie? That's more like Shecky Spielboy. Can you do it again, Thrasher? <laughs> Just. Can you do that reading again? Just say, how are you doing, Georgie? You want a balloon? How you doing, Georgie? Want a balloon? Right. And um, Skarsgård, as Pennywise in the new film, is like, uh, goes a higher pitched. So it, it, it's something like, how you doing, Georgie? You want a balloon? So it it's just... It, not to mention the way the sound is mixed. He's very difficult to understand at times. It could have been the speakers in the theater I saw the film in. But that he's creepy less off the get-go, ironically, makes him less creepy. And they double down on the clown stuff so much. There's a few sequences where it's neat. Um, and they they do play more with the conceit of the book. And that, although, yes, a lot of times Pennywise is a clown, most of the time he's representative of what you fear the most. Hmm. So he, he, he's more of a shapeshifter uh, in this show. And I, I, I highly recommend it. It's a bit long. It's uh, two hours and 15 minutes. Um, but they have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, hilariously, 
in the end credits, it says the title card, It, and then it fades in chapter one. Oh, no. Because it's getting a sequel, right, with the older people? Um, but my, my prediction is that they'll actually make two more films, but that's, that hasn't been, I could be talking out of my ass on that one. So I would not be surprised if that happened. Yeah. They're going to pull a Hobbit is what I call that or a hunger games or whatever. Um, and, and this is certainly a big enough story where they could do that, but the, the or Harry the, Potter. Yes, yes, yes. And then the stuff with the kids is, is very good. Very good kid acting. The, um, uh, it, it has one of my. I did laugh a lot. The movie is very funny, which I, I. And I think they make up a lot of jokes in here that aren't in the book. Uh, I especially like a line. One of they're fighting the bullies at one point, and one of them says, uh, "Go blow your dad." You mullet wearing asshole or something is one of the insults <laughs> from the kids. So it's it's a lot of. Uh, the stuff with the kid is very much like Stand by Me, and it was like that in the book as well. So, but in in a good way. I um, uh, I guess I've been rambling a little bit here, but I just would, I just want to say one joke that was a bit on the nose. You see a theater marquee in the background, and at the beginning of the film, it, it shows Batman and Lethal Weapon two, huh. and then at the end, uh, the movie and the marquee is Nightmare on Elm Street five: The Dream Child. <laughs> and given that it plays with nightmares and things, that's a good call out. Well, um, that's that's a much more natural theater marquee reference than the Excalibur in uh, Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice. Did they have Excalibur on a marquee? I don't think I even noticed. Yes, they yes they did. That was the that was the movie that uh, the Wayne family was seeing the night Bruce's parents were murdered. And I guess you can say it's almost like a, a version of Excalibur in that film where they get the kryptonite tinged spear or whatever the hell it is. Well, it's 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 the flat out Excalibur, Excalibur, the John Borman one. Well, yeah, no, I'm just talking about later in the film where they have all this stuff with the the kryptonite. Um, don't don't give Zack Snyder that level of credit. You don't think that's intentional fo- to mirror? Well, what, what, okay, why don't we? We don't, we don't talk about news. Is entirely yeah. coincidental. We don't talk about news in the show, but really quick, I want to get your thoughts on uh, the Justice League, the first of those films. Zack Snyder was originally directing it, and then uh, it's a, a tragic thing happened. His um, well, child... due, due, due to a fam- due to a family tragedy, he had yes. to he had to back away from the film and, uh-huh. and, and with Joss Whedon. With Joss Whedon, and Joss Whedon did enough at least thirty percent of the writing. So he's uh, Joss Whedon is a credited screenwriter. I imagine they'll share director credit, but I don't really know. And um, what do you think about that? Do you think the the film is going to be more comedic? It seems that way from the uh, trailers. I, I suspect it it will be. Uh, I I guess th- this is my feeling. It probably will be. It probably will be more comedic. Also, being Joss Whedon, it will it, it will be it will be wittier. But due to the fact that Joss Whedon and Zack Snyder are such different directors, I think it's going to be an a, a tonal mess. I do hope the. Uh, rumors about Ben Affleck stepping down from Batman are true, but we'll see. Well, like I, I would, I would love to have seen the Batman movie he wanted to make when he first signed that contract, right? As opposed yeah. to the Batman movie that he would probably have to make now if he was moving forward. And it's unclear if he is or not. At at you know, right before Comic Con, those stories were leaking. Then at Comic Con, he said absolutely not. But then in some interview, his brother Casey Affleck. Said, well, he Ben Affleck had a good run as Batman, 
So I don't know if they're just sort of screwing with the press on purpose or, or what's happening. But um, there's been a lot of Batmans over the years. You know, it's not like... But I, I do not like Ben Affleck's Batman. Although I think as Bruce Wayne, he has a, a funny sort of humor to it. Um, so I, who I knows? Think he would make a, I think he would make a wonderful Batman in a better series of films. Do you like the concept of uh, them doing a Joker Harley Quinn spinoff and also a Joker prequel movie? Uh, Joker prequel movie completely unnecessary. A Joker Harley Quinn spinoff. If it's if it's like Bonnie and Clyde but with two DC supervillains, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, um, that that could be neat. I think, huh? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what's going on because they're saying the Joker prequel movie isn't going to have uh, Jared Leto as the Joker. So I don't know what's happening. They're they're clearly trying to make a zillion spinoffs because Suicide Squad did really good. Um, so we'll just have to see what's happening. So uh, next time on Sequel Cast Two, we'll be talking about Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, and then uh, going forward, we will be looking at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Help oh, out! Man, the sh- that's going to be a fun trilogy to work through. Absolutely, help out the show with the monthly contribution to our patreon at patreon.com slash sequelcast2 the more money uh, all you listeners donate the more shows you'll unlock at different uh levels starting with right off the bat you get access to an exclusive monthly sequel commentary show that's right audio commentaries on cult films and sometimes sequels (laughs) so follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t you can follow me at Internet Mayor on Twitter. Write us a lovely review at, on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. And, you know, just just generally enjoy the show and spread the gospel of the sequel cast, too. That's right. Talk about it to your friends. Say, you know, do you like uh, rambling conversations about movies? Have I got a show for you? Um, so, next week, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King for the sequel cast, too. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Taters? What is taters? Taters. What's taters, huh? Boiler mash them, stick them in a stew. Boiler mash Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequel Cast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 